Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's gospel is from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 11 through 20. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we examine the scriptures this morning, we take part in thousands of years of men and women and children diving in to the story of your resurrection, which is really a story of you diving into the brokenness of this world. We are well acquainted with grief and sorrow and pain. We are well acquainted with hope and joy and connection. We're a mixture of faith and cynicism of feeling like we're loved and known and feeling alone and isolated, of feeling at peace and feeling angry, of feeling whole and healthy or feeling addicted or depressed or anxious. But however we find ourselves now, help us to see that you know us and you see us in all our complexity. And your response is not to run away, but to dive into our story, to take our pain upon your shoulders, to move through death into life in your resurrection. And so we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, that you would convince us of your great powerful love for us, that you would send us out to be agents of your renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the people I swim with in La Jolla 
His name is Tom. And Tom was recently inducted into what's called the Triple Crown Hall of Fame for swimming, which is a very short list of people who have swum from Long Beach to Catalina Island, who have swum the English Channel, and have circumnavigated Manhattan Island, which is 28 miles in itself. That is a very short list of people. And Tom's one of my heroes. He's one of the most humble people. He'd probably be blushing if I told you about this, but it's all on the public record, so I don't feel like I'm sharing any secrets. But one of the things that strikes me is how focused he had to be to accomplish such unimaginable feats and not only make it that distance with no wetsuit and no help. Uh, I mean, there's a, an aid boat along, but you can't hold on to it. Not only to be able to survive it, but to do it quickly and then to train well still keeping his career going, and here's, here's the most important part, still doing it in a way that his wife and children still love him and feel cared for by him and not alone. I said, Tom, how do you do that? He said, it takes a singular focus of what you're trying to do. The way that I interpreted it is you're not only trying to set these records and, and attain these goals, but you're trying to do it in a way that has health in a 360-degree sort of way. And what Jesus said was, what does it gain you to gain the whole world and lose your soul, right? That's not how Tom put it, but that's how I took it. What would it gain me to, what would it profit me to get all of these accolades and have a lonely family or a career that's tanking, you know? We have to focus on this. There's a singular focus. There's a mission and I love how focused he was on the mission. The question is, what is the focus of your mission and of mine? It might not be to swim the English Channel, but are you aware of what your focus, what your mission is? Maybe it's to make it to a certain level in your career. Maybe it's to make it to a certain relationship status. If you're not married, you want to be married. If you're married in a relationship that's not working out well, you want to see it healed and reconciled. If you don't have kids, you might want to have kids. If you have kids, you might wish you didn't. Kind of joking. Um, no, of course, Benjamin, Levi, Joshua, when you watch this later with your therapist, I do love you. Um, but what is your goal? What's your mission? Are you aware of it? Because some of us can either go through life just floating. In San Diego, I think that's especially easy where you say, I'm not sure where I'm going, but the scenery is always excellent here, so I'm not too worried about it. And then you wake up one day and say, where is my life headed? Or if you're more type A achiever, Enneagram 3 type, you are climbing and climbing and climbing the ladder, and it is possible to get to the top of the ladder and realize it's been leaning against the wrong wall the entire time. You climb the mountain, climb the mountain, climb the mountain, get to the top, you look out, and what do you see? More mountains to climb. Are you aware of your mission? Today, Jesus gives us, in his resurrected appearance to his followers, the mission of the church, what we exist for. And he does it after he's been crucified in front of them. As he is standing in front of them, risen from the dead, and I love the honesty, the authenticity that we get through scripture. They don't just say, they saw him risen, and everybody immediately believed and trusted and took these words into their heart, put them into practice, and everything worked out great for the rest of their lives. The honesty of scripture tells us in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, and some of them doubted. Jesus comes to you in the midst of your hope, 
and the midst of your cynicism and your skepticism and says, peace be with you. I know you, I love you, and I call you to myself. So let's pay attention to that mission that we see today. First, we have to look into the reality and the truth of the resurrection, and then we'll look into the implications of it. The reason we do it in that order is because if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then the implications really don't matter. As Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be most pitied of all people on earth. If he didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, self-medicate, take care of yourself, look out for number one, for tomorrow we die. But if he did rise from the dead, it changes everything. And so in this series on resurrection, whenever the Gospels present us a little a hook to hang uh, uh, some hope on or a foothold to stand on to say, Christians don't believe the resurrection happened as an act of blind faith, but there are actually real, historical, rational reasons for believing he rose from the dead. And we're presented with one today in that first part of the Gospel that Rita read, this plan to go and tell the, the leaders that Jesus was, his body was stolen. Now, to understand that, you have to hearken back a few verses earlier. And uh, so we're going back now to chapter 27, verse 62. Jesus has just been crucified and laid in the tomb. And this is what happens. The next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders of the religious establishment, they gather before Pilate, who is the Roman leader. So this is religion and politics colluding in a plan they're about to hatch. They go to him and they said, Sir, we remember that this imposter, Jesus, said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. So Pilate, the political leader, said to them, You have a guard, you have access to the Roman centurions. You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Okay, this is setting the, st the stage because the next thing that happens is you have these Roman centurions, which were people who trafficked in killing, who were the best guards in the world, who also knew that if you're guarding a position and that position was taken, your life would be taken from you because you failed. Okay? These people are highly motivated to guard that tomb. Not only that, there's a big stone that's rolled in front of it that some scholars say could have weighed you know, hundreds if not thousands of pounds rolled in front of it. And now that stone is sealed with what would have been the Roman Empire seal, basically saying whoever breaks this seal will have their life broken. Okay? Next thing you know is the scripture we read last week where Jesus, the stone is rolled from the side, Jesus is risen from the dead, and now that's where our scripture takes up today. So while they were still going, now Jesus has been risen from the dead. The stone is rolled to the side. Some of the guard that were there went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, they did as they were directed, and this story is still being told to this day. Okay? Do you see what happened there? The guards went and said, the tomb's empty. The religious leaders say, and Pilate says, this is going to be a problem. 
So here's the story you're going to tell. Now, you know the next objection is the guards are going to say, if we say that the disciples stole the body, we will be killed. And that's why they say, don't worry, we'll go, we'll exercise some political favors, we'll make sure that you don't get into trouble. And that's the story that's still told to this day. What do you notice, right? Imagine this is like an SAT listener comprehension class. What do you notice about the story? The guards say there's no body in the tomb. The religious leaders say there's no body in the tomb. Pilate knows that there's no body in the tomb. The disciples know that Jesus' body is not in the tomb. What does everyone agree on? His body is gone. The question is why? Now the guards and the religious leaders and Pilate will say the body was stolen. Then you have to put the disciples on trial. We've done this, we th I think we did this on Easter. Did they have the motive, the means, and the opportunity to steal that body under the cover of night? This is where you start using your mind about the resurrection. Did they have the motive? What would they gain by doing this? All of the disciples, by going on and proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead were miraculously infused with courage to go on and pour their lives out on behalf of others, many of them dying for the proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. So what did they gain by stealing the body if they stole it? Nothing. Why would you do that? Did they have the means? These are, these are a ragtag group, largely of fishermen, allegedly breaking in through the middle of the night, rolling a stone, breaking the seal, sneaking behind the Roman centurions. They didn't have that much of means to do that, nor did they have an opportunity. So you put them on trial and say, look, I understand that it's hard to believe that a man died publicly and rose from the dead. But then you begin to preach the gospel to yourself, to massage the facts into your brain, the eyewitness account saying, we know it's hard to believe as well. Remember, we worshiped him and we doubted. It's hard to believe, but these are the facts of the case, and it changed everything. It was this that went on to explode the Roman church, or the, the, to explode the Christian church in Rome almost overnight, where for the first time, Jewish people who would believe Yahweh would never take on human form, uh, walk as one of us, that there would be a resurrection in the middle of history beginning to believe that Jesus is one with Yahweh that we are the temple, that the spirit dwells within us, or the Greeks who would never have had some sort of a desire, let alone a vision of a possibility of a bodily resurrection, overnight believing that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. In other words, entire worldviews were transformed overnight. It takes a long time to change your worldview. Think about a way that your mind has been changed about something important. It takes days, it takes weeks, it takes months, maybe even years of conversations with people, reading books, reading articles, thinking about it, sleeping on it, praying about it, and then slowly the ship turns of worldview change and overnight worldviews were transformed. And they would all say one thing, the reason why is, the reason we're this courageous, the reason we're this unflappable, the reason we see Jesus as the Son of God is simple. We saw him, you can believe these things, you can trust these things. But going deeper, because here's the implication. It's been said that the two greatest moments of your life are the day you were born and the day you realize why you were born. How do you answer that question? These are tremendous questions. Why are you here? Why do you have the gifts, the education, 
the social access, the abilities, the passions. Why do you have everything you have? Why are you here? And who's all that for? These are tremendous questions. This is one of the reasons a church exists, is to go on the deeper journey of asking these questions. And there are a lot of ways to seek to answer it. On one hand, we could say you exist to know the God that created you. Now someone says, yeah, 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 that's what I expect to hear in church, please. We exist to know God. Yeah, whatever, get to the next part. Where's the fast forward button? But just pause for a second and think about this. Even if you're in a place where you're not sure if God exists, doesn't it at least follow to reason that if God does exist and God did create you and knows you, that the greatest thing you could do in life would be to know that God? Don't take that for granted. What does it look like to know God? Well, it takes asking a bunch of good questions. It takes a lot of patience. It takes identifying your doubts and your hesitations and owning them, but not letting them push you down and keep you away from God's loving presence. Here's what I mean by that. It says, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Note the nuance here. The Bible distinguishes between doubt that can be healthy, that can propel you forward, and doubt that can be unhealthy and paralyzing and prohibiting you from moving. So that unhealthy doubt would be something like this. Jesus is risen from the dead. And they say, I doubt it. I'm not even going to look. I'm not even going to try. I'm staying home. Or there's a version of doubt that propels you where you say, I doubt it. This is hard to believe. And I'm going to press in and see how far this trail leads. You let your doubts fuel you toward Jesus, which is what they did to their great surprise as they met him on that mountain. Um, Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on this passage, you have this in your worship folder if you want to read it later, it's on page three. Uh, he says, there's never been a worshiper of Jesus who didn't also doubt him. Matthew's daring inclusion of the divided mind at the very birth of mission is his way of saying that doubt should not be taken too tragically. Doubt your doubts. It is not as if doubt's presence should paralyze Christ or Christians. Doubt simply is, however explained, a component of disciples' little faith. There's still imperfect humanity this side of the general resurrection. Matthew's good news in this report is that doubt and worship can and do exist together. Doubt and worship can and do coexist. And so you allow it to press in. This happens in community as we come together in our community groups. And one of the questions every time we gather is, what questions arise for you? And when someone shares something that sounds contrarian or working things through, it's not the group's job to fix you or to smash that down a little bit. It's us to go, oh, let's hold that question together. Let's, go, let's study it more deeply. Let's think about this together. Let's go deeper together instead of just letting it keep us home. So here's the question. What are your current obstacles or doubts? What's stopping or blocking you right now, whether mentally or emotionally, from moving forward and following Jesus? I urge you to write that down. And even in your prayer life to say, Jesus, even this I bring before you. 
I long to know you, but here's my question. And see what God does with that in your life. Part of the answer of why do you exist is you think about why were you born for a purpose? You begin to ask, why does that question even matter? Like, if you were to say, you know, life is meaningless and you just have so many, time, so many years on this planet, or life is about amassing as many resources as you can, or life is about looking as good as you can without looking bad, or life is about escaping pain. But, like, the bigger question is, why does the question even matter? Why do you exist? And the answer is, I would suggest, because you were designed by a God who knows you and loves you and created you for a purpose. A God whose mission is to reconcile all people to God's self, to renew all things, to move toward all the brokenness of this world and to heal it. And so there is a seed that is planted in your soul that you are called to be a part of that. And so if you're an artist, the art that you create is part of the renewing beauty of this world. If you're a parent, the way that you shape and mold and care for these children is part of the renewing of all things. If you're in psychology or education, the way that you care for the people around you builds them up mentally, emotionally. You have a part to play in this greater renewal. And so what's the part that you play? If life is one great symphony of renewal, what's your instrument? What part do you play in this symphony? Now, just in, this, in a few minutes, I want to point out a few things about this calling. Okay? This calling is also often called the Great Commission. Right? This is Jesus giving his commission to his church. Um, go to any Christian church in the world, and they will be familiar with Matthew 28. What's going on here? First, here's what we see. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So first, let's consider the authority of the calling, then the call itself, and finally the promise of that calling. First, the authority of the calling. This is Jesus the King giving kingly orders. You know, a check is only as good, you remember checks? Okay, a Venmo transaction is only as good as the person who's sending it. Right? If I give you a check for $10 million, you do not have $10 million. If Elon Musk sends you a check for $10 million, you can go and buy a house and a Ferrari and a boat and travel the world and give generously because you have $10 million. A check is only as good as the person sending it, a calling is only as good as the person making the call, giving the orders. So who's talking? Jesus the King. Jesus with all authority in heaven and on earth. But he's a different type of king altogether, a servant king. A king who that when he realizes all power and authority is equal to God the Father, he doesn't see it as something to be exploited, but rather empties himself, giving himself on behalf of the world. So he's a king, but he's a servant king. He's a messianic king. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to fulfill an old promise. 
And all the way back to the earliest promises of Yahweh to Abraham, I will be my God, you will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will bless you, through you all the nations will be blessed. And the nation of Israel is waiting and longing for the Messiah to come and to make all things new. To bring all people together. And so the judges and the prophets and the poets and the kings, and you read through the entire Old Testament, and it's everyone leaning forward saying, when is God going to send the Messiah to make all things new? Jesus comes as the messianic king through whom all God's promises are made true. Through whom all of Israel's identity as the beloved of God is held Israel is not faithful in itself. Read any part of the Old Testament. Israel is faithful in Jesus because he is the true Israelite who brings about the faithfulness of God. And what did God intend? To be a light to the nations. To be a blessing to the world. And Jesus comes as a king to bring all of that. He comes as a ruling king. Now, somebody says, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that Jesus is in control of all the cosmos right now? And I say, yes. And to which you say, are you paying attention? Are you seeing what's happening in the world? If Jesus is really ruling right now, he's doing a very poor job. And this is where, as Christians, theologians, scholars talk about the already and the not yet of the coming kingdom of God. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection... He has birthed new creation in the midst of the old. He has inaugurated the coming kingdom of God, and yet it is not complete until he comes again to make all things new. This is the story we remember at this table every Sunday. And so now we live in the overlap of two time epochs, epochs, where we have the old kingdom and the new kingdom, and the new kingdom is coming forth, which means this side of the new creation How does God's coming kingdom of faith, hope, and love, of renewal and reconciliation, how does it come into this world? Through us. Through you. Through me. This is why the church is called the body of Christ, the action of God's body in this world, infused by his spirit, living out his resurrection power wherever we go. That vision is so high it should give you a nosebleed. That's the calling. There is no such thing as an ordinary day or an ordinary person. We're called into the mission of God. And he is a sending king. Because in his kingly authority, in his power, in his ruling, in his messianic messianic kingliness, the only vote that gets cast for the church is his. And you know what it is? Go. Go. Move forward. Let's look at this call. Go, be outward facing, make disciples. Make disciples is the only thing Jesus tells us to make in the entire New Testament. You know what that means? Be about your life in such a way that you are contagiously living the good news of Jesus wherever you go. So that instead of catching the sickness of this world, when people are around you, they contagiously catch the healing of the gospel. Help people more and more realize they're created in the image and likeness of God and to live into that. Go, make disciples. Now, someone says, wait a minute. You mean this is where Christians kind of get their fuel to go shove their faith down other people's throats, to go proselytize people and really hit them over the head, you know, to be helpful in a way that's not helpful. (laughs) And I say, I hear you. I've seen that. I can empathize with you. That is not what this is calling us to do. I will also make the case 
that you are already evangelizing in some way. Your voice, your life is already proclaiming some version of a message. The question is, are you aware of what you are proclaiming? Are you aware of the message that your life is portraying to this world? And I'd also make the case that I've seen a lot of lives changed in this church in its very young, infantile, first stage of a church plant. I've seen lives transformed. Very few of them were transformed because of the sermon. Very few of them were transformed because of the music, as wonderful as it is. You want to know what transforms lives? It's one person walking with another person with compassion, faith, hope, love, and patience. And that's where the reconciliation happens. That's where the renewal happens. And so Jesus is saying, in his authority, go, be a part of that great calling. Go to all the nations. You know what's so neat about living in San Diego? Is you don't have to leave your block to go to all the nations. There are multiple languages spoken on this block. You don't have to cross the street. If you did want to cross the street, you can go 15 minutes south and be in another country, in Tijuana, in another city of a million people. You have your phone, which is connected to every nation on earth. You, can, you have the nations in your pocket. The point is, he's expanding your empathic imagination to go toward those who are not like you. To walk across the room. To go to a hurting friend. To go with radical generosity. To go to the other. To them. To go to people who make you feel uncomfortable. To cross lines politically. And he repeats this, to go, to go, to go, because we have to intentionally counteract the default drive to cocoon with people just like us and stay. And you can stay with people just like you. And it will give you the promise of being more comfortable. And you will be. But there you will atrophy and stagnate and not grow. And Jesus says, I love you too much to let you live that way. Go. To whom will you go this week? What would it look like? Just tomorrow. Think, let's start small. Tomorrow, one person, one group, person in your office, person in your family. To whom will you go in this way? And just finally, I have to include this or else this is not a sermon. It's a self-help session or motivational speaking. Finally, don't try this without the gospel. Don't miss the promise of the calling. As you go, remember, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Elsewhere, he calls us the beloved. So maybe we would add in, and remember, I'm with you always, and I love you. We must always remember this at the core, or else that going will come out of a place of woundedness and pain and fear and anxiety and it will simply project more of that into the world. So the invitation is not go so that God will love you, it's remember how much God loves you and go out there and go get him, go for it. When my son plays baseball, I try to tell him before every at bat, Benjamin, I love you, I just love watching you, I don't care what happens at the plate, I hope the best for you, I just love you. Now go get him. And God says, I love you. So you can move toward the pain of others. 
So you can move into relationships without needing to be codependent, needing something from them. You can work in your career with excellence, but not needing everybody to notice and give you a standing ovation all the time. You can be around difficult people without needing to be the judge, jury, and executioner, and arbiter of justice in that relationship. What would it look like if the first thing you heard tomorrow is go, I love you, I will never leave you or forsake you. And notice this, when he says I will be with you always to the end of the age, it's not you singular, like I'll be with just you. It's you plural. It's y'all, as the southerners would say. Meaning you will experience Jesus and others will experience the grace of God through you when we come together as a group, as a church, as a faith community, in a way that we otherwise wouldn't experience. Jesus says you will experience my grace as you move forward together. I am present in the mission of the gospel. As Christopher J.H. Wright says, the mission of God is to renew all things. The mission is God's. The miracle is that he invites you and me to join in. And so whatever it looks like in your life, specifically, let's take the next step together today to go and trust that he's with us and he loves us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would infuse deep down into us a sense of this calling to go, to not only be the beloved, but to be beacons of that love and hope and renewal wherever we go. And we simply pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is in heaven, in our church and in the city as it is in heaven. So whatever it looks like for us to play our part in that great symphony, give us the courage and grace to do it now, we pray in your name. Amen.